Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here, to worship you, to give glory to you, to proclaim hallelujah, praise the Lord. And I pray that this morning you will be glorified through all that is said and done. Lord, glorify yourself through communion. Glorify yourself through the giving that takes place. Glorify yourself through the preaching of the word, the singing, and the fellowship. May it all be about you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus Christ spoke with two disciples. And on that seven-mile journey, these disciples who were overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with thinking that all was lost, overwhelmed with thinking that Jesus was still dead. They did not realize it was Jesus, in fact, who was walking with them. And on that journey, Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should, sh- should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if I asked you, what does the Word of God say about Jesus Christ, most of you would probably open your Bibles and turn to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, do not miss this truth, that the Old Testament is just as relevant for who Christ is and what he would do as the New Testament. In fact... The Psalms, as most of you probably think of them, you probably think of Psalms as being songs or or, or prayers or words of encouragement, and rightly so because that is what many of the Psalms are, prayers, songs, and words of encouragement. However, the Psalms are packed with truth about our Lord Jesus Christ who he is, and what he would do. And I want to take the next couple of weeks a few psalms, one at a time, and we're going to look at messianic psalms, okay? And that's just, a, that's just the Old Testament word for the anointed one. Whenever you see the word anointed one, you can know that it's talking about Messiah. In fact, that is the Hebrew word, Messiah. And so hopefully, you'll see the Messiah in each one of of these texts. But today, I want you to open up to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. And we're going to look at that. Now normally, what we've done in the past is we've read the whole psalm, and I think there's certainly a place for that. Uh, But we're going to take the psalm section by section this morning. And I'll just give you a little heads up as we're reading through Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2. This psalm is broken up into four equal sections of three verses each. So right now I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at what the text says, then we're going to come back to the next section in the text. So Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against His anointed there's that word, Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
This first section is what I'm going to call the rebellion. Let me turn my clicker on. The rebellion. Verses 1 through 3. And this is the insurrection against God. Steve Lawson tells the story of the French, a story during the French Revolution of a man seeking to remove every vestige of law and order from the eyes of his countrymen. He scaled the cathedral of Notre Dame and tore down the cross from atop its spire, dashing it to pieces on the ground below. The cross, representing the authority of God, lay demolished on the ground for everyone to see. Turning to a poor peasant, the revolter boasted, we're going to tear down all that reminds you of God. But from the crowd, a challenging reply arose. Citizen, then you might as well pull down the stars themselves. Fighting against God proves to be as impossible as one trying to pull down the stars. It's not possible. It's silly. It's nonsense. And yet in Psalm 2, we encounter nations and peoples, kings and rulers who rebel against God, trying the impossible and utterly failing. This really shouldn't surprise us. There is a history of rebellion. We first saw this from the fall in the Garden of Eden. Remember Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, the king of Egypt? Moses went to him and said, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let your people go. And of course, Pharaoh did not win the battle against the Lord. We see this with Sennacherib. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar. We see this with a list of different Caesars. And the list could go on and on. Uh, Most recently, I saw this quotation From Joseph Stalin, it says this, By May 1st, 1937, a little over 80 years ago, there should not be one single church left within the borders of Soviet Soviet Russia. And the idea of God will have been banished from the Soviet Union as a reminder of the Middle Ages, which has been used for the purpose of of oppressing the working class. Well, today, Joseph Stalin is dead. And I'll tell you, though it is oppressed, the church lives on. Yes, in Russia, people are fighting against the Lord. All throughout the world, people have been fighting against the Lord. But that is not just something in the past. It is something that is current today. Uh, If you're you're in Psalm 2, I want you to look over. It's probably two pages over to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Uh, You probably are familiar with this from Romans, but it's actually a quote from Psalm 14. The psalmist writes, in fact, this is David, who writes, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. 
They do abominable deeds. And here's where the quotation starts in Romans 3. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You know what this is telling us? This is telling us that currently, man, not just some men, but all men from all places everywhere are rebelling and in rebellion against God. That is the judgment that we see from here in Psalm 2. The rebellion of man against God. And it is utterly silly. Not only has the history of been not only has there been a history of rebellion, not only is there a current rebellion, but in the future there will also be a great rebellion. The book of Revelation speaks of the future alliances of the world's rebellion against God. And uh, some of you might remember in, in Revelation 17, John had this vision of, of, a, of a woman. She was a prostitute, and she was actually on the beast. She was on this beast uh, over, over a, a, a waters, many waters. And he sees on the, with the woman there, is, there are seven heads and then ten horns on the heads. And John starts to wonder about this vision that he sees and what does everything represent and, and, and the angel tells him, well, the seven heads are, are seven kingdoms, four, or excuse me, five of which have been and are no more, one that currently is and one in the future that has not yet been. But then we come to chapter, uh, then we come to verses 12 through 14. Revelation 7, 12 to 14 says this, and the ten horns that you saw are the kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, and together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of hosts. And the king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And that is the future rebellion. But you know what? This was all part of God's plan. Every part of that rebellion God knew would happen. And he set in order his own plan to accomplish his own will. And, you know, sometimes we, we can open up the Scriptures, and if we ever have trouble wrapping our minds around a text, sometimes it's helpful to look and see if, if there's another Scripture that well, quotes that particular passage. And, and sometimes it helps us to see the context of what's happening. And if, if you look at Acts chapters 3 and 4, I'll just give you a little bit of a background here. In, in Acts chapter 3, John and Peter went into the temple, and it was during the hour of prayer, and as they were going into the temple, there was a, a, a lame beggar who, who cries out to them, asking for some money. And, and Peter looks at this beggar and he said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You remember this? And the man stood up and walked. And he went walking and leaping and, and praising God. And there was a great excitement. And Peter and John went forth and they proclaimed the good news. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there are others there who were not 
walking and leaping and praising God. In fact, they were indignant. They were jealous of Peter and John and all that they saw happening. And the Sadducees went and arrested Peter and John. And they said, you stop preaching the name of the Lord. Peter and John responded in Acts 4.19 saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, but for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And a couple verses later in 25, after they were released, they said this, through the mouth of our father David, this lets us know who wrote this psalm, Psalm 2, David wrote this psalm, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed Christ. He goes on, he says, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know what? Peter and John, they read Psalm 2. And not only did they see it looking forward to the future return of Jesus Christ, they saw applying to the very days that they lived in. God appointed Pontius Pilate. God appointed Herod. God appoints all rulers. And all of these rulers who are rebelling against the Lord, God will judge them. So how does God actually respond? What does God do? Well, He responds by establishing a king. Look with me at verses 4-6. through six. Psalm 2, 4-6. through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God's response. He establishes a king. Well, the first part of that, how does God respond when all the nations from all over the earth come against him? What does he do? He laughs. <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is not the laughter of, of, of humor. This is the laughter of scoffing, mocking, and derision. A, a few weeks ago, there was a, a series, a, a documentary on ESPN. It was following the Chicago Bulls of the 1998 season. That was the last year that... Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, and some of those other names that played on that team. And, and, and it just followed them for the whole season. And then every, every once in a while, it would go back and forth from different seasons, things where Michael Jordan uh, had to grow a little bit in his game, or Scottie Pippen, all these different scenarios. One of them, they go back and they actually interviewed a guy named Gary Payton, uh, yeah, uh, Gary Payton, who played for the Seattle Supersonics. 
Yes, a, a team, a basketball team, used to play in Seattle. They don't anymore, but uh, he was there with the, the Seattle Supersonics playing against them in the, in the finals, and Gary Payton was guarding Michael Jordan, and, and he tells this part of his story, guarding Michael Jordan. He said, I kept hitting and banging him and hitting and banging him, and it took a toll on Mike. And he says this then, then the series changed. Do you know what that means? That means the Sonics actually won a game. Nobody expected them to win a game. And they show a picture of Michael Jordan watching Gary Payton say all this. You know what Michael Jordan's response was? His eyes kind of bulge open and he goes, <laughs> He couldn't guard me. Are you kidding me? There's nothing. You know what? Gary Payton compared to Michael Jordan. That's not the correct comparison. And Michael Jordan laughed at Gary Payton. A better comparison might be my two-year-old daughter, Lucy Ann, going up to Michael Jordan in the height of his career and saying, you ain't got no game, Michael. That's what it's like for the nations when they rise together against the Lord, try to make him fall. The Lord laughs and scoffs. He says, are you kidding me? And he knocks them out of his way. There is laughter in heaven from the Lord when people try to rise up against him. And so what does he do? He establishes a king with authority. He establishes his king. Verse 6, let me read it again. As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Zion is the, uh, the location of, well, where the throne of God is. It's in heaven. It, it is a heavenly location, often throughout the Psalms, but you know what? It also is in reference to the city of Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was, and on that temple mount, or within that temple mount, was the throne of God. Oftentimes throughout the scriptures, that is also Zion. Zion is a real place on earth, right here, but it's also a real place in heaven. This is a reference to both. Both the heavenly Zion and the earthly Zion. The heavenly Zion where the Lord is, but also the earthly Zion where the Lord will be established as king. You know, the great thing about being a Christian is we get to read the end of the story, right? We know what the end will look like. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, it tells us that He will descend on the earth riding a white horse. He has victory over all the nations of the earth. And all that victory, it's simple. It's easy. And here's what happens in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and, the, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan. 
and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Friends, there is a time coming when Satan will be bound and Christ will rule in Zion for a thousand years and he, Satan will not deceive the nations any longer. For the Lord has said in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is judgment coming for all the nations. And the king will deliver that judgment. But he moves on and he responds in another way. He establishes his son. Or maybe I could even say he begets his son. Read with me in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, this, of course, is referring to the Incarnation. The Incarnation. Jesus, the Son. And again, this is a, one of those passages that is quoted in the Scriptures. And if you remember in, in uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. And they went and they were proclaiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And usually their, their, their tactic was to go into a synagogue on Sabbath. And that's where they would have the opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's actually what happens in Acts chapter 13. And you can read the whole sermon, Acts 13, 16 through 41. But the goal of the message was the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 32... Paul said this, and we bring you the good news, right? The gospel that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son and today... I have begotten you. If there was any doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, Psalm 2 cleared it up for John, excuse me, for Paul. Psalm 2 cleared it up for Barnabas, and Psalm 2 clears it up for us. Jesus is the Son of God. And the fulfillment of this text in Psalm 2 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That was fulfilled in the incarnation. That's what Paul taught us. Of course, we see that repeated twice in the book of Hebrews. You remember Hebrews? The, the, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ offers us a better covenant. Jesus Christ is a better high priest. Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice. Jesus is superior in all these things. In chapter 1, there's a comparison to angels. And it asks the question, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Answer, he never said that to any angel. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. 
Jesus Christ is superior to all things. That's the point of Hebrews. And it quotes this text referring to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We see this reflected at the baptism of Christ. If you look in Mark 1.11, it tells us, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus Christ heard those words from the Father. It was spoken again at the transfiguration to Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17.5. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter, listen to him. And while we see that the, the uh, implication of this is the incarnation, there's something else too. There is an inheritance. An inheritance. Ask, and I will give you the nations of the earth. You know, some of you have received some pretty cool inheritances. Uh, maybe it was property or a significant amount of land. Maybe it was a car, a family heirloom or something like that. Um, I have a, a baseball. Uh, some of you guys have seen this. It's, it's one of those just kind of really cool things. My grandpa gave me a baseball that was signed by Mickey Mantle. And it's one of those things, it's just, it's fun to show people, and oh, Mickey Mantle, amazing, you know, and uh, let's go play baseball with it right now. Um, <clears throat> no, it, it, it's one of those cool things. Well, well that's, that's the only inheritance that I've ever gotten. And what did Christ get? <laughs> Christ got the inheritance of every nation on the earth so that he could rule. The inheritance of kings. Kings pass on inheritance of the kingdom to their children. Well, Christ, who is the king of the world, he'll receive the inheritance of all nations. But remember, the nations are in rebellion. This is not a missions conference text. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, your heritage. That's not what this is talking about. This is a judgment text. See what he says in verse 9? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever taken a clay pot and broken it? Smashing it with iron or steel or a baseball bat breaks into a million pieces. And that's exactly what Christ will do with all who rebel against him. Revelation 19, I made a brief allusion to this a little bit ago, but Revelation 19.15 says this. After Christ rides down on his white horse, says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation's looking back to Psalm 2. and What would happen? What will happen one day when Christ rules the nations? Well, Psalm 2, it moves... First of all, from man's rebellion against God to God's response of establishing a king to God's response of establishing a son. But in the end, it all leads to God's reconciliation. Reconciliation. And really, we could add the word 
redemption. Here's what he says at the end. Psalm 2, 10-12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 act as a gateway to the Psalms. Psalm 1 began with a blessing. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 2 ends with kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you want, afterward, I would encourage you, make a comparison of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and how they work hand in hand as the gateway to all of the Psalms. They were intentionally placed there together. But Psalm 2, while it's really a psalm of God's judgment, it closes with reconciliation. This is God's invitation to man. Reconciliation is two enemies. Let me say that again. Reconciliation is two enemies becoming friends again. Two enemies becoming friends again. God has taken us who are at enmity with Him and offered to us a gift. Forgiveness for our rebellion. At a great price, the life of His Son. That was the price. And that is the gift that God offers to each and every one of us. God offers to you reconciliation so that you can be friends with Him. Now think about that for a second. This is a great text for Communion Sunday. Now, while it may not necessarily mention the death of Jesus Christ, we're reminded of that death of Jesus Christ and the fact that we have, can have communion with Jesus, with the Lord, the Creator of the earth. This is a great warning. This is great wisdom. It warns kings who rule nations and rulers who rule people for all who can read the word of the Lord, to take heed and to be wise. And it gives us three things to do. Three responses to this great warning of Psalm 2. Number one, serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. It was only a couple weeks ago on Father's Day that we opened up the Proverbs and began to look through some various Proverbs. And I read Proverbs 1-7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Also Proverbs 9-10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of God leads to a relationship with God. And God offers a relationship freely with Him. 
free to you, but for him, it cost him his son. The response is to serve the Lord with fear. Romans, many of you are familiar with that Romans road. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is a gift. And it brings justification, righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And in Romans 6, 23, it goes on to say, For the wages of sin is death. That is you. Every one of you who is in rebellion against God, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eternal life, a relationship that begins now and it continues on into eternity. That is the gift that Jesus Christ offers. A relationship. And of course, in Romans 9.10, that if you believe with your heart, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No doubt there are some here today, either listening online or here with us this morning, and you don't have that relationship, but you can have it today. It is the relationship that God offers freely by grace. If you only believe, I'll just invite you today, go to the Lord in prayer. Confess your sin to Him. Confess that Jesus died for your sin and that He rose from the dead. Offer yourself to Him and His service with fear. And all oh, you will be warmly embraced. And you can have that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ today. Well, the next thing it says, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. What does it mean to rejoice with trembling? And uh, a number of years ago, I think Christopher was probably two, and uh, I went out with him. We just had a fun time together, and, and we went to the train station here in Caldwell. And you know, it has the water fountains and everything, and we were running through the water fountains and playing, and just before we got in the car to leave, I realized, oh, the train's just right down there. And so I picked him up, and we went and we sat and we just waited for the train. And here it comes, here it comes, buddy. And as the train came in, there was this burst of wind flying on our faces. And the building shook and the ground trembled. And we watched the train zoom by. It was fantastic. And he held on to me and I held on to him. And we went home and as soon as we got home, Christopher rushed inside and he told his mother, we, 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 we saw a train, train. And for the next week, that was the only thing Christopher talked about, was this train. Everybody that came in, train, 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 train. And Joy would have to explain, oh, Christopher saw a train last week, and he really enjoyed that. And, and, and I'll always remember uh, that week uh, we, we came to church, and Christopher was in the nursery, and he had this little toy train, and he's, he's pushing it around, pushing the button. That was his favorite toy ever, and it was here in the nursery. And so, I think the next day, we packed up Jasmine and Christopher, and we didn't have Daniel or Lucienne at that time. And the four of us, we went to the train station, 
And as soon as we got to the train station, Christopher knew where we were. And he was so excited. And he starts talking about the train. But you know what else he was doing? He was shaking. And I held him, held him very closely and tightly. I said, yeah, the train's coming. And he was excited about it, but he shook with fear. He trembled. You know what, I, I think that's the same idea that, that David is getting after here. Rejoice with trembling. Be excited about that relationship with the Lord and all that He's accomplishing, all that He's doing in your life. But at the same time, the holy reverence and honor and respect of the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Number three, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. What does it mean to kiss the sun? I think that's a funny thing. And um, uh, I'll just say this. In our culture, we don't necessarily um, just kiss friends, unless it's uh, your spouse or, or maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're probably not going to kiss anybody. Maybe you'll kiss your kids or something like that, but you know, right now with uh, uh, the coronavirus, nobody's kissing anybody, right? And, and, and as we just consider, what does he mean when he says, kiss the sun? I think we know that it's in a reference to Christ because Christ is the sun, but what does it mean to kiss the sun? And I thought about this and I started to look at this and, well, you remember in Esther, remember the story of Haman and Mordecai. And in Esther chapter 3, verse 2, that same word is used. Kiss. Well, that's not how it's translated. It tells us that all of Ahasuerus' men came down and they bowed and paid homage to evil Mordecai. Uh, evil uh, uh, Haman, I said that backwards. Haman. Except for one person, that was Mordecai. What's it mean when they paid homage to him, though? They bowed down and they paid homage, but it tells us that they kissed him. Think of it in this way. Probably Haman at that time had a, uh, had a ring. And maybe had a royal symbol, recognizing his own authority at that time. And as all the people came along, they came and they bowed down and they probably kissed his ring or some sort of symbol that was upon him. And that is how they paid homage. In fact, that's how the New American Standard translates this word in, in Psalm 2, verse 12. Pay homage to the Son. But the word quite literally is kiss the Son. So, of course, the application is obvious then. Pay homage to the Son. Kiss the Son. Give Him your loyalty. Give Him your allegiance. Follow Him. Serve Him with joy and trembling. And give Him all of your honor, your respect, your allegiance, and your life. And with that comes the forgiveness of sin. A relationship with the Creator of the universe who loves you and cares for you and offers reconciliation. And then the psalm ends this way. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. After Psalm 2, the psalm of destruction, the psalm of judgment, of the king carrying that iron scepter and destroying, smashing to bits like clay all the nations who rise up against him. And it tells us, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Alistair Begg said it this way, the only way to take refuge from the king is to take refuge in the Son. Today, take refuge in the Son. And I'm going to pray a prayer in just a second. But as we begin to transition into communion, let me just ask, are you at peace with the Lord? If you are not at peace with the Lord, make today the day that you turn and that you kiss the Son, that you embrace the Son. This truth is for you. But for those who have been at peace with the Lord, who know the Lord, who have that relationship with the Lord, let me challenge you, let me encourage you, let me remind you to take just a few moments and to focus. Focus upon the death of Jesus Christ. Remember that price was great. Oh, it was great indeed. Jesus Christ came, the perfect, sinless Son of God came and He took your place. The wages of your sin is death, but He came along and He paid the price. And this morning when we take of communion, we remember. We follow the orders of our Lord and we remember His death that He paid for you. And I'll just say this for all who are here this morning who know the Lord, you are welcome to participate in this communion, this service of communion, remembering the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not at peace with the Lord, let me just say, please let this pass. But let me give you a few moments to reflect, to give thanks, and to give honor to the Lord, to prepare your heart as we take a communion together. And I'll go ahead and turn the video off and give you a few moments to reflect.